Today, we're reading from the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 12 to 26. It will be helpful if you can have your Bibles open as I read so that you can read along with me. So let's start together. Mark, chapter 14, starting at verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Good morning from the Phillips's couch. Over Christmas, Mara and I spent 10 weeks in Southern Africa. And while we were there, we ate a lot of meat cooked over open fires. It's called a bribe, and it's a way of life there. Now, you'll know that Australia is full of South African expats. They're really more like exiles in many ways, that they can't or they won't go back, although they desperately wish that they could. And South Africans in Australia, they also bribe. But here, it takes on a new meaning because they are homesick and they long for their nation and their people, but they can't see it or touch it anymore. So they invite their South African friends around and they throw their budivors and their poikis on the fire and they smell and they taste and they touch something that they can no longer see, something intangible, their Africanness. It has become for them an important, powerful ritual. This morning, we start our Easter series in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm excited to be preaching from Mark 14 because it includes something very odd that is very important to me. The Lord's Supper, otherwise known as Holy Communion. It's important to me because it's a ritual that helps me to smell and taste and touch something true but invisible, intangible, 
And so it helps me to remember who I really am, a follower of Jesus Christ and a citizen of his kingdom. It helps me to keep alive in my heart the Lord and all that he has proclaimed. Throughout this whole book, Jesus proclaims that the kingdom is near and he claims to be its king. Although this kingdom has an odd quality about it, you can't see it or touch it. Not yet, at least. However, it is still such a dangerous proclamation that it ultimately gets Jesus executed. So the kingdom is very near and very real. And in this chapter, Jesus gives us a new way to keep that reality alive. Let's dive in. Pull up chapter 14 if you haven't already in your preferred Bible or device. If you find outlines helpful, there's one in the notes section. And I've divided this into three parts. First, we'll look at the preparations for the Lord's Supper. No, sorry, for the Last Supper. Then we'll get to the Passover feast, where Jesus gives his disciples the Lord's Supper. And finally, we'll consider our own participation in this ritual today. So, preparations, Passover, participation. Okay, point two on the outline. Preparations for the Last Supper. This first section is from verses 12 to 16. And you're probably wondering, like I was, what's up with all these strange details? What's really odd, though, is that these details are clearly not strange to the disciples. They don't react or comment at all. What we're getting here, I think, is a a peek into life as a dangerous rebel. When they were up around Galilee, Jesus and the disciples, they operated pretty openly. They were on home ground, far away from the authorities. But now they're in Jerusalem, and so they have to be very careful. When you're publicly challenging and defending the powers of this world, it's a time to be circumspect. Let's look at the details. In verse 13, Jesus tells the disciples, Go into the city. And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Some have wondered whether all of this is just prophetic foresight. But if that was so, I think the disciples, they would have been amazed. And there's a couple of interesting details uh, that paint a different picture. First, men don't carry jars of water. At this time in history, that's a woman's duty. We get a snapshot of that in John 4 when Jesus encounters the woman at the well. It would be extremely unusual for a bloke to be doing this. Like, it's meant to be noticeable. Maybe as a way for the disciples to verify who they're looking for. And that wouldn't be very successful, of course, if everyone was carrying a jar of water. And then, notice how Jesus says that this man will meet them. This has all the hallmarks of a prearranged plan. It's covert operations, and they're scurrying around, trying to remain unnoticed. It's the same in the next couple of verses. In verse 14, Follow that man, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Sorry, it goes on. He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, and there prepare the meal. 
So Jesus is a big deal, but he's not universally known as the teacher at this point. The owner of this house knows Jesus personally. In fact, it sounds as though this is a place that Jesus may have visited previously. There's a room set aside just for him, and it's prepared for just this occasion. Once you see it this way, I reckon it's a bit obvious. Who's seen or read Harry Potter? In The Order of the Phoenix, the fifth book, Hogwarts and the Ministry of Magic are being run by people who haven't yet understood what's really at stake in the world. And they viciously suppress any suggestion that anything is really wrong. As a result, Harry and Ron and Hermione, along with all the other students who have realised the truth, they have to operate with secret coins and secret signs and prearranged plans and so forth. It's all very strange. It's all very secretive. But now, imagine if you were reading this part of this book with no context. It would just seem bonkers. But of course, we don't do that. And we don't do that in Mark's gospel either. We do have context. Jesus has made powerful enemies, and they're out for his life. He has been operating in Jerusalem, but in full daylight and surrounded by great crowds who adore him. Now, however, it's time for the Passover meal, which is shared in a small, intimate setting and at night. That's a dangerous combination for a wanted radical. That's why there has been some careful planning in anticipation of this night. Let's move on to the main event. The preparations are complete. And now we turn to the Passover meal itself, section three on the outline. And two crucial exchanges take place here. In the first one, Jesus is very much alone. And in the second, Jesus is intimately surrounded, all at the same time, in the same meal. Let's see what's going on. So the first exchange is about Jesus' betrayal. From verse 18. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Jesus has mentioned his betrayal before, repeatedly in fact. But this is the first time they hear that it will be one of them. You might think they would be devastated at the possibility that their Messiah will be betrayed. But instead, they inquire, verse 19, Surely you don't mean me. They don't seem to be saddened about the fact that Jesus is to be betrayed so much as whether they will be the one who does it. They are concerned with themselves and they still don't understand what is coming. I think we all know that feeling of being misunderstood, especially when it's about something that's really important to us and the people around us, they just don't get it. Sometimes that can be infuriating, frustrating, but it's usually just disheartening. It can really deflate your enthusiasm and make you feel alone and inadequate. Just imagine feeling like that when you're facing what Jesus has to face this night, even surrounded by his dearest friends. Our Lord is so terribly alone here. And then confirming their fears. In verse 20, Jesus 
He says, it is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So in this first exchange, approaching the most crushing trial of his life, Jesus is isolated by those closest to him. He is bearing all the anxiety and pressure of the night that is to come, alone. Yet again, the nature of the kingdom he proclaims is misunderstood. And now, he also faces personal betrayal. The next movement of the meal is stark by contrast. The Passover meal is sacred to Jews. It is one of the hallmarks of their religion and ethnicity. It is one of the things that marks them out from the rest of the world. Nobody else celebrates it. They aren't allowed. It's the private practice of an exclusive club. It's a ritual. And through it, the Israelites remember that God rescued them from slavery. Through this ritual, they recommit themselves to a truth that they can't see. The truth that there is one God and they are his people. Jesus takes this holy, sacred ritual given to them by God himself, preserved and passed down for 2,000 years since the time of Moses, and he changes it. This is staggering. It should be blasphemy, but it's a reminder for the disciples and for us who this really is. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. So what does he change? Verse 22, he takes the bread and after giving thanks, he breaks it and he shares it saying, take, this is my body. We are reminded that the son of God has become flesh. He has a body. And through this humble ritual, Jesus invites his friends so very near to himself. The New Testament church, along with the church throughout the ages, has understood that they are in fact a bodily part of the Lord Jesus. As the disciples consume the bread, it symbolizes that they are joined to this man. Whatever happens to him now will symbolically happen to them as well. And they haven't accepted it yet. But one of the chief implications of Jesus' humanity is that he can... And he will die. Soon after, Paul the Apostle will repeatedly show what it means that we who are joined to Jesus have died with Jesus. And very soon, in place of the Passover meal, the disciples will have a far greater sacrifice and a far greater salvation to memorialize. And this we're going to hear a great deal more about over Easter next weekend. So next, verse 23, Jesus takes the cup and he gives thanks and they drink from it. And he says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is my blood and they want, he wants them to drink it? Gross. What exactly is Jesus doing here? Well, He's changing things. And there's a big one here. We're supposed to notice it because there's something missing. It's a huge part of the Passover meal. 
and it's a bit of a big deal to prepare. But we didn't see anything about it during the preparations, and there's no mention of it here either. It's the sacrificial lamb. The Israelites, on the night they were rescued from slavery in Egypt, they were supposed to take the blood of the lamb and to paint their door frames with it so that the angel of death would pass over their homes. The blood symbolised the life of the creature and a symbolic exchange is made, its life for their life. The lamb is conspicuously absent at the Passover meal that Jesus shares with his disciples. But the lifeblood isn't. Verse 24, this is my blood which is poured out for many. Jesus himself is the sacrificial lamb, as we're going to see in the next chapter. And if they will not symbolically share in his blood, then his life will not count in place of theirs. So this blood is also the blood of the covenant. What does that mean? Again, we're going to zoom in on parts of this whole thing in much more detail next week. Here, though, God has promised that he will eventually do something new and different and wonderful. God promises an amazing new chapter in his dealings with his people, actually with all people. He has made many covenants with them over time, with Adam, with Abraham, with Moses and with David. But one of those four is different to the others. When God makes his covenant with Abraham, he combines a couple of elements that make it quite unique. Unlike God's covenant with Adam and Moses, in his covenant with Abraham, only one party has any obligations. And that party is God, not humanity. And unlike all of those other covenants, the covenant with Abraham is sealed with a sacrifice which is a way for God to express how seriously he takes his own obligations. Amazingly, these same elements are combined once more in the new covenant in Jesus. In Jeremiah 31, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was with them and I was their husband. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, declares the Lord, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. As we will see in the next chapter, Jesus himself is the sacrifice that seals this covenant. And here, in Mark 14, Jesus is saying that new covenant has arrived. It's one more way of talking about God's kingdom, actually. 
Jesus invites his friends to inherit all the covenant promises and blessings of God from the Old Testament. He invites them to enter the kingdom of God. They do this by symbolically sharing in his blood, his life, which he will pour out for them. But if the apostles looked around, they would not see the kingdom. And when we look around today, we cannot see the kingdom. Not yet. Not with our eyes. It's hard for something to be real to us when we can't see it and we can't touch it. And meanwhile, the world assaults and tempts our senses in every way possible. The Passover meal was one way for the Jews to keep alive in their hearts the reality of their God who has rescued them and who graciously rules over their lives. Jesus replaces it with a new ritual. It's a way for his disciples to remember this new rescue from an even greater evil. And it's a way for them to keep alive in their hearts the reality of the kingdom of God, which has now come near. The same ritual helps us today. Along with Christ's church, for 2,000 years, we gather together, we listen to Jesus, giving us the symbols of who he is and what he is going to do and what it all means. And we share in those symbols to help us keep believing. The idea of ritual actually isn't so odd. Think of a footy club or a university or a tribe or a family. Belonging to these are real and true things about who you are, about your identity, but they're pretty much invisible. They're intangible. They do, however, have activities that they share, and they also have symbols and rituals which they share. You put on the scarf and you go to the showdown, and afterwards, you're a little bit more of a Crows fan or a Port fan. Or you wear the sweater, and you know all the good UniSA jokes, And for not much more reason than that, you grow more and more loyal to the University of Adelaide. Or you've grown up in Australia, but when you're 16, your parents take you back to Samoa and you return with a tribal sleeve, a declaration of who you really are. When I was a teenager, dinner at my dad's place on a Tuesday night was really important because it was the only night of the week when the whole family and stepfamily were all together. It's not like you stopped being a part of the family if you couldn't make it, but it was a big deal if you had to miss this ritual. And it was a sign of something quite special if anybody else was ever invited to join it. So, there's heaps of pretty common examples of ritual, actually. There's a heck of a lot more to the Christian life, but, like everybody else, followers of Christ have rituals that they share as part of their identity. And this helps bind us together and it helps to keep a truth that we cannot see alive in our hearts. So final point on the outline, let's talk about participation in the Lord's Supper. How can we really participate in what was going on that night at the Last Supper? I hope that after today, we can do Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, a little more actively a little less passively. I want us to be engaged with a real and powerful ritual 
that we understand a bit better and that is personally important to us. Rather than going through the motions, something that's a bit odd and a bit confusing. So, as we participate together in the Lord's Supper, helping to keep the truth alive in our hearts, I think there's three things going on. We're remembering, we're hoping, and we are proclaiming. So, remembering. Luke, in his Gospel, he records a little more than Mark does, adding Jesus' words, Do this in remembrance of me. We've discussed how the Passover functions as a meal of remembrance with the Lord's Supper now taking its place. So when we do communion, remember the significance of all the parts. Remember that God became man. Remember that he spilled his blood as the atoning sacrifice. Remember that he has sealed a new covenant. A covenant of promise and blessing. And remember that he has intimately bound us to himself. When we share the Lord's Supper, remember. We've also talked about how we cannot see the kingdom yet. It is yet to fully come. And we are restless for its completion. We look forward to that with anticipation. We hope for the return of our King Jesus. And Jesus has given us this ritual in the form of a meal. And listen to how the prophet Isaiah describes what we are looking forward to when Jesus returns. In chapter 25, he says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is what God is doing in Jesus. And it is what Jesus anticipates when he says, in verse 25, back in Mark, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. As we wait for that day, we're in good company because the king longs for it as well. So when we share together in the Lord's Supper, be filled with hope for his return. And finally, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul the Apostle says of the Lord's Supper, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The whole ritual is laden with the symbolism of Jesus' death, of course. It's actually quite shocking. The Romans in the first few centuries, they wondered whether Christianity was a cannibalistic cult. 
But for any who witness our ritual, it's impossible to escape the questions. Who is Jesus? What has he done? Why do these people worship him? It's not the main or the only way that we proclaim Jesus, but it is not insignificant. In fact, let me take a moment to speak to any who have joined us this morning who are not Christians. If the Lord's Supper seems to you strange, even alienating, and if it makes Christians seem like a cult, well, we do understand. But we're glad it makes you think about our Lord and about what his death meant and about what he means for you. We're not ashamed of that. I do hope that your time with us this morning has been helpful in understanding what Holy Communion is and why Christians do it. But, to be honest, you'll never really get it, not truly, unless you're a follower of Jesus. Thankfully, we're not an exclusive club. Jesus died for you too. And through him, you can join with us in all the promises and blessings of God. So if Jesus is becoming real for you, joining us in the Lord's Supper is a powerful way to take another step towards him. And if you want to do that, we would love to speak to you about it. So brothers and sisters, when we share the Lord's Supper, this strange ancient ritual, let's keep the truth alive amongst us as we remember as we hope, and as we proclaim. The kingdom of God is near. The king has come, and he will return.